Jesus is. And she's carrying this pint-sized jar that they tell us is pure nard. It's an alabaster jar full of perfume. Now, alabaster jars back then were a luxury item. Not everybody would have had them. Um, but what was inside was even more valuable. Um, no, what was inside was so much more valuable than just this alabaster jar. Um, alabaster could be found pretty easily anywhere in Israel, but the stuff that was inside it came from the region of India, and some Bible scholars think even maybe from the Himalayan region. And so for that reason, it was extremely valuable. How valuable was it? It tells us that it was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. I don't care how much money you make, that's a lot. That's pretty valuable. And so Mary takes the most expensive, most valuable thing that she has, and she takes it over and she breaks it because it didn't have, didn't have like a lid or anything like that. It had to be broken to be poured out. And she breaks it and she pours it over Jesus. The most expensive thing she has, she gives to her Savior. This is such an extravagant act. It's actually been called one of the most extravagant acts of worship in the scriptures. And she doesn't care who's inside, who else is inside, what they're going to say about her, what they're going to think about her. All she knows is that her Jesus is inside and she wants to get to him because she has something valuable to offer. I have kind of an old school three-point sermon today. Make it easy. And the first bullet point is um, talking about true worship. True worship comes from a humble heart. It's interesting to me that this box had to be broken before it could be poured out. Um, it really is impossible to worship the Lord in spirit and truth with a prideful heart if you're full of pride. Uh, proud people think this way. They think, you know, God, when you chose me, man, good choice. I understand why you chose me. But a broken person will simply pour their heart out to the Lord. In Psalms 51, 17, David writes, Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Couple things that happen when she anoints Jesus. First of all, the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I mean, a little bit goes a long way, but she poured out the entire thing. Was that really necessary? Like, she could have just poured a little out, right, and saved the rest. I mean, this is expensive stuff. But that's what the disciples were thinking as well. That's what they were thinking. Um, they said, we could have actually sold this for a large sum of money and given the money away to the poor. I mean, come on, why was this wasted this way? So I'm not sure how concerned they were about the poor. Maybe they were a little bit embarrassed because seeing something this extravagant, this overboard, may have made them a little bit uncomfortable. Have you ever seen anybody worship in such a way that it kind of made you a little bit uncomfortable because they were going so what appeared to be overboard in their worship of the Savior. See, we tend to look at the perfume, the value of the perfume, and not the one that it's being poured out on. We tend to judge the worship and not the one that's being worshipped. 
Because what was more valuable? Was the perfume more valuable or was Jesus more valuable? Obviously, Jesus. And he was the one that was beyond measure. And if she had had a gallon of perfume, she would have poured it all out in that room because she wanted to spend it all on Jesus. She wasn't holding back. You guys know this if you were with us in Philippians. Um, Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever I think I have, status, possessions, reputations, accomplishments, it's all worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And that's the way that she felt as well. And Jesus told the disciples, he said, you guys think this is a waste? You call this a waste? I tell you what, everywhere the gospel is preached, including some of the letters that you guys are going to write, this story will be told about her worshiping in this way, in this kind of an extravagant act. This is what true worship looks like. And I think all the disciples got it at that point. All except for Judas, that is. This was actually the last straw for Judas. Because it tells us right after this, he went to the Pharisees and asked them how much they would give him to betray Jesus. Do you expect us to worship like that? To not hold anything back? To spend it all on you? I'm out on that, is what he was saying. Judas had just witnessed this incredible act of adoration, and it did not move him a bit. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look foolish. I'm not going to spend it all on you, Jesus. Judas, Judas had been sitting next to Jesus for three years. He had, it was like being at church every day for three years, and he completely missed it. See, he was physically present with Jesus, but his heart and his mind were someplace completely different. And today what we're going to talk about is a group of men who were physically located someplace different, but their hearts and their minds were, you know, captured by Jesus, this newborn king. That's why I've, I've called this one, Come Let Us Adore Him. So let's read Matthew chapter 2. This is the visit of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Matthew already gave us his earthly heritage. And then he told us about his arrival as deity through the virgin birth. And now we have the recognition of his kingship by the outside world, by the Gentiles. I've always been fascinated by the story of the wise men or the magi that we call them. Uh, Maybe it's because when I was little, I think I was around five or six, the school that I was in, we we put on one of the old school Christmas plays. And I got cast as one of the wise men. And I remember walking down the aisle, carrying our gifts, singing the song, you know, We Three Kings. We Three Kings of Orient Heart, bearing gifts we've traveled so far. And I, I don't know about you, for the longest time, I thought these guys were from a place called Orient <laughs> Am I the only one? It's Orient R. But we sing it so fast, these three guys are from Orient Heart. I thought that's where they were from. Um, Orient, as in the east, east of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where these guys were from, but it's believed from the region of Babylon or from Persia is where these guys were located. Uh, There have been many myths and legends about these guys and who they were, but what we know for sure is that they were highly educated, highly respected, and they had a lot of influence wherever they were. The first appearance in history is around the 7th century BC, and they were part of a tribe there in Persia, and the Magi specifically were associated with the priests of that tribe. They were skilled in astronomy, the study of the stars, the interpretation of dreams, and some practices like sorcery or magic. So that's where we get our word magic from the Magi. And these guys were very skilled, very talented, very powerful. Uh, They were also advisors to world leaders, so much so that they were considered kingmakers. They were the ones that controlled political and judicial matters. Uh, We have one example in the book of Esther. You might remember at that time that the king, King Xerxes, was having a huge party, big drinking party again, popular in those days. And he decided to bring his queen out. He said, go get Queen Vashti, have her put on her crown and come out. I want to show her off. She's beautiful. And Vashti was having none of that. And so she refused. She said, I'm not coming out and doing that. And Xerxes was furious, but he didn't really know what to do. That didn't happen in those days. They didn't say no to the king. And so he didn't know what to do. And so in Esther 1, verse 13, we read this. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times, that's important, and were closest to the king. These seven guys, I'm not going to try to pronounce those, these seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. So these guys were the most powerful, highest people in the kingdom besides the king. And then we also have an example in the book of Daniel. Speaking of Daniel and his friends, it says this, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And remember, when we talked about Daniel interpreting the king's dream, we find out eventually he was placed in the number one position over all of the wise men, over all of the magi, right behind the king. He was put in charge of everything. Everything. 
And I believe it was the writings of Daniel some 500 years earlier that the Magi knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew to look out. They understood the times. And we should understand the times too. Uh, We are in the end times. I don't know if anybody would argue that. Um, If you do, come see me. But I said a couple weeks ago, I had listened to some things that were extremely scary. What I can tell you, I listened to some more stuff this week, um, that everything is in place for the Antichrist to to walk onto the scene. And there is, and I'm not just talking about, you know, barcodes and things like that. I'm talking about very sophisticated technology that is ready to go um, as soon as he makes an appearance. And people, I'll just clear this up because... You can get lost in rabbit, you know, holes uh, looking at end times videos on YouTube. So I don't recommend that. But people have been concerned that what if I accidentally take the mark of the beast? And what I can tell you is there is not going to be a mark of the beast until there is a beast. So nobody will accidentally take the mark of the beast. So just kind of put your minds at ease there. Um, and if you ask me, we're not even going to be here when that happens. So we will be in heaven. So we don't have to worry about that. So just to ease your minds there. But, you know, we should understand the times. And even Jesus scolded the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day for not understanding the times. In Matthew 16, they were demanding a sign from heaven to prove his kingship. And Jesus said this, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus was saying, I already gave you a sign in the heavens, and you guys missed it. You guys missed it. You guys think you're smart because you can interpret the weather, but you've completely missed what's going on around you. So you guys have been right next to me all the time, but your hearts and minds were someplace completely different. So the Magi set out, and they followed the sign that God put in the heavens. And it doesn't say that there were three of them. It just says that there were three gifts. So over time, we have interpreted this to mean there were three Magi. There probably were more than that. And if it were just three guys on camel showing up at Herod's doorstep, he probably wouldn't have been that freaked out. But it was probably more than that. They probably had an entourage of servants, maybe even armed guards. And this is probably what put Herod in a panic. And just to blow up your little nativity set at home a little bit more, um, it tells us that they arrived at a house. They didn't arrive at a stable like the shepherds did. And so they would have showed up on the scene about a year or two after Jesus' birth. And we know that because we'll find out next week um, as Herod sends out, you know, his people to find all of the two-year-old or younger boys. But why did they make this journey? The wise men made this journey hundreds of miles perilous to worship Jesus, to worship a baby they didn't even know. And you know, I'm going to step on a few toes this morning, and I'm just trying to stretch you guys and move you, you know, out of your comfort zone. But we have trouble sometimes waking up on Sunday morning and driving a few miles to worship a Savior that we do know. These guys traveled hundreds of miles to worship Jesus. But there's another important character in the story, and that's a man named Herod. 
King Herod the Great. In verse 3, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod troubled? Well, Herod was troubled because he wasn't really a king. He was a fraud. He was actually put in place by the Romans around 40 BC. So he wasn't an actual king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite, which meant that he was a descendant of a guy named Esau, if you remember him, Jacob's older brother. And Jacob and Esau didn't get along back then, and they didn't get along now. And the people of Israel despised this Edomite puppet king that had been put in place as their leader. Herod would have been about 70 years old when these wise men showed up. And they were asking where they could find this Messiah, this king of the Jews. And the, the connotation here is that it was a continual asking, that they were going around asking people, where is the one that's been born king of the Jews? Where is this baby, the guy that has been heralded by the star? And so that's the reason why Herod is freaked out. Another king? A real king of the Jews? Now, why weren't the people happy? Like, if there's a real king, a legitimate king, why weren't the people ecstatic? Well, you guys are probably familiar with the phrase, if mom's not happy, nobody's happy, right? Same thing with Herod. If Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy. They were troubled too, because usually what that meant was bloodshed when Herod wasn't happy. This is the guy that they were that they were coming into contact with. Historians tell us that he was a short man, about five foot tall, had a bit of a Napoleon complex. He was married at least three times. He was extremely jealous, extremely suspicious. And because of that, he had one of the priests killed. He had one of his wives killed, his mother-in-law, and three of his sons killed. One five days before his death. That's the guy who had just gotten the news that there was a new king, a real king that had been born. Now, he knew that people hated him. He knew this. And that when he died, nobody would shed a tear. They would actually want to throw a party when he died. So to ensure that there would be mourning in the city when he died, he told his military leader, he said, I want you to round up all the nobles, all the distinguished people in Jerusalem, and I want you to arrest them, and on the day that I die, I want you to execute them. That way, I can guarantee that there will be mourning in Jerusalem when I pass. Now, thankfully, that last order was never carried out. Verse 4, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This blows me away. He learns that there might be another king, and not just any king, but the Messiah. And so he gathers the religious people to ask them, where is this supposed to take place? And they come in and they're like, oh yeah, um, the prophet. Yeah, he told us that this was going to happen in Bethlehem. You guys know about this. You know where he's supposed to be born. Bethlehem is like five miles away from Jerusalem. That's it. It's close. Now, if the most important person in the history of your nation is going to be born five miles away, I would have set up like, I don't know, a station there. Somebody to keep watch and to look out for the Messiah the day that he would arrive. But it was five miles away, and they didn't even bother to go down and keep watch. There wasn't anything remarkable about the city, not unlike 
Bethany. In fact, if you were to go to, to Bethlehem today, you'd be pretty disappointed because there's not much to see there. It may have looked insignificant, but some really significant things happened there. Some really significant people came out of there. Uh, Jacob buried his wife there, Rachel. Boaz met Ruth there in Bethlehem. And then we know, of course, that David was from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, fitting since the bread of life was born there. The city itself was really only important because of the people that came from there. And it's the same thing with you and I. Uh, Jesus comes into our dirty, dusty little lives, and he makes us somebody's children of God based on whose we are. And that's the reason why this place was famous too, because of Jesus. Everybody in the world knows about Bethlehem. A ruler who would shepherd the people. Now, it was going to be way more than a person who just showed tender care, the way that it was associated with shepherds, and the people knew that. It was going to be a sovereign dominance. It was going to be one that was legitimate and final and perfect. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a military leader, actually, somebody that they thought would free them from Roman oppression, not somebody that would just free them spiritually from their sins, what they really needed. They may not have had a perfect idea of who the Messiah was, but they knew enough that they should have recognized him and they should have worshipped him. The Magi knew far less about who the Messiah was going to be, but what they knew they believed. And what they knew, they acted on. They followed. The Jewish leaders of the day had the letter of the law, but they rejected the one who was the fulfillment of that law. The Magi had very little of it. Maybe just what Daniel had written down. But they were remarkably responsive to it. They responded. And that is the second bullet point. Not only does true worship come from a humble heart, but true worship responds appropriately. In verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced greatly, exceedingly with great joy. Here we have several responses to the news that the Messiah King has been born. And it really parallels the same way that people respond today when they hear the message of salvation. Some people are like Herod. They don't want to know anything about him. They just want to get rid of him. Herod was vengeful and he wanted to lash out and he wanted to attack and he wanted to destroy the Messiah. And many in our society today just want him to disappear. They want to destroy the name and the influence of Jesus in our culture. He's a threat, really, to them just living their lives the way they see fit. They don't want to submit their lives to anyone, much less some moral teacher, ancient, you know, from, uh, from days gone by. And so they act like Herod and completely reject and want to lash out and attack him. Others are like the scribes and the religious leaders of that day. They just plain ignore or pay very little attention to him. Most people fit into this group, and it's a dangerous place to be because it's made up of both people that are completely indifferent and also people that may sit in a pew on Sundays. And I've said this before, but the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. 
It's just not caring. I could take it or leave it. Now, we can all agree that ignoring God is the same as rejecting God, but the real danger is for the people that just play at religion. That is, they may show up on Sunday if they feel like it. They may have a Bible at home, but they can't remember the last time that they opened it. They really have no other spiritual nourishment in their life except they be on church on Sunday. Try eating once a week and see how that goes. And then dangle barbecue and pie in front of my face and see what happens. My big uh, temptations, at least. Because that's what we're doing spiritually. If we show up and sit in a seat and then we go out into a sin-filled, temptation-filled world. It's not about ritual. It's about relationship. Because if you're apathetic towards the Lord, indifferent towards his word, then you're not moved to repentance and you're lumping yourselves in with those who simply ignore him. So, Nathan, are you telling me that there are people who are sitting in church pews today that will not go to heaven? That's what I'm saying. There are people who will sit in churches but won't because they completely are indifferent to Jesus. They are not moved. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. He missed it. He was indifferent in the end. In Matthew 7, Jesus is wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking about false teachers, false believers, and he says that you will know them by their fruit. Now, you can only produce fruit if you are connected to, in relationship with, the vine. If there's no fruit, then there's no connection. And he says this to the crowd in verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Revelations 3, God says, because you're lukewarm, because your room temperature You're not cold or hot. If you were hot, I could use you. If you were cold, I could convict you. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Like, because you're not cold or hot, you're no longer in Christ because I'm going to vomit you up. It makes me sick to my stomach because you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You have just enough of Jesus to make you uncomfortable in the world And just enough of the world in you to make you uncomfortable in church. In 1 John 2, it says that if you love the world, you've become an enemy of God. Judas walked with Jesus every day for three years, and he missed it. Jerusalem was five miles away from Bethany, and they didn't bother to go down there and keep watch. The religious people ran into Jesus all the time, and they missed it. Jesus said, you're lost. We can be simply near Jesus. But if that doesn't cause you to want to get to know him more, to repent and to be drawn to him, then you're caught in the middle, just indifferent or lukewarm. The third group are those that are like the magi, the wise men and the wise women who may not have a perfect picture of who Jesus is, but what they do know they act on. And they're looking for the Lord and they accept the Lord and they believe and most importantly, they worship him as king. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
Uh, Matthew is trying to convey here what they felt when they found the king. And words really just don't do it justice. Listen to some of these other translations with the words that they use. Thrilled, ecstatic, overwhelmed, overjoyed beyond measure, indescribable joy, joy that knows no bounds, marvelously glad, beside themselves with joy, and they shouted joyfully. All these words to try to convey how they felt when they finally found Jesus. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. This is not a recommendation. This is a command. It's not make a muffled grunt before the Lord. It's not serve him begrudgingly. It's not come into his presence with a cup of coffee. Listen, I sit on the front row, so I don't know what goes on behind me. I'm not here to judge the way anybody worship, because worship is a matter of the heart. But I have been in churches where, you know, I open my eyes or I looked around and I see people standing there and they have one hand in their pocket and another hand on their coffee and they're just kind of standing there looking at the words on the screen. And I'm like, this is the God of the universe, the creator, the one that wants to save you and have a relationship with you and keep you from a place, a real place called hell, separation from him for eternity. And we can't enter his, you know, his presence with singing and make a joyful noise and serve him with gladness. Why were the Magi beside themselves with joy and falling down to worship a baby? It wasn't because they got something from him. He didn't have anything. Actually, it's interesting to me because when Mary and Joseph showed up eight days later after his birth to dedicate him, the cheapest thing that you could use at the dedication was a pair of, of birds. Like, that was it. That's all they could afford. Couldn't afford a lamb. They got a pair of birds because they were so poor. So it wasn't because they could get something from him. And it wasn't because of something that he had done for them. He was just a baby. They fell down on their face and worshipped Jesus simply for who he was and simply for who he is. A simple understanding of who Jesus is should be enough for us to worship him with our whole heart and worship him extravagantly. Now, of course, we're blessed when we worship. Of course we are. Um, Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we certainly get blessed. We get something out of it when we worship, but that's not our motivation to worship. We worship because it's a celebration of who God is the king of kings. Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bowed down in worship and presented him these gifts, these gifts which are incredibly symbolic. They were recognition of his kingship, and they also recognized the different offices that he was going to fill as Messiah. The gift of gold. Gold symbolized his position as king. Uh, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, but living in a Western democracy does not do much for us as Christians in our recognition of sovereignty and absolute sovereignty as they understood it in their day. We love our freedom. We love our autonomy, our right to choose. We don't have a problem viewing Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. We value sacrifice in our culture, so we don't have a problem with that. But what we do struggle with is making him king and lord over our lives, over every area of our lives. 
surrendering those rights and saying, my allegiance is to you above every other thing, every other area in my life. In Proverbs 18.6, it says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. You never wanted to appear before the king empty-handed. You always showed up with something to give the king. When you stood before him, you brought a gift. Gold being the most precious you know, medal of the day, that's what they brought for King Jesus. The gift of frankincense. Uh, this was an expensive, beautiful smelling incense that was only used in very special occasions and specifically by the priests. This was a priestly gift, one that was used in ministry. Jesus is called our high priest and he carried our sins before the father um, and he made atonement not by the blood of a lamb but by his own blood he was the priest that became a lamb there were specific sacrifices um, at the temple where it was required and then it was optional in other sacrifices if you wanted to if you had a desire to um, please God even more than you would actually use the frankincense as well. But it was not to be used in any sin offering, which is interesting. A gift for the priest, one that had no need of a sin offering because he was the one that became a sin offering for us. The last one was a gift of myrrh. And myrrh was another precious perfume, one that was used for a number of purposes. Uh, it's mentioned a few times in the Bible. Once we're told it was mixed with wine offered to Jesus on the cross, specifically because of its pain-killing properties. Uh, it was used as an anesthetic. It was also applied to open wounds, and if you had skin issues, skin problems. Get this, this blew me away. This is really cool. The ingredient, the main ingredient in myrrh, is captured out of a tree when it is cut, and the sap runs out. They use that sap to make myrrh. And the small tree that it comes from is encompassed or surrounded by thorns. Is that incredible? This tree that is surrounded by thorns that has to be slashed for the sap to come out to make this precious perfume of myrrh. And the myrrh was symbolic of his humanity, of his humanity and the way that he was going to die. Uh, that movie that I mentioned last week, um, The Nativity, if you guys haven't seen it, I would urge you to watch it. Um, when the Magi arrive and they set their gifts down, uh, they say, gold to honor the king of kings and frankincense to honor the priest of priests <laughs> and myrrh to honor thy sacrifice. These gifts from the wise men were prophetic. They were also costly. True worship, that's the third bullet point. True worship is always costly. Just like Mary of Bethany. It might cost you your dignity. People might think you're weird. Worshiping a God, honoring a God that we can't see. Closing your eyes, raising your hands, shouting. All of these things that we do. It might cost you financially as you give. Giving is an act of worship. It's submitting to his lordship and honoring him with what he's given us. Might cost you friends and family. Might cost you relationships. People might say, listen, don't come around here preaching that Jesus stuff to me. I'm glad that it works for you. I'm happy for you. But don't bring it around here. Might cost you some relationship. Might cost you some hobbies that we have to set aside as we intentionally make time for the Lord on Sunday mornings. Church used to be Sunday mornings, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights. Uh, we used to set aside all that time for church. 
Time set aside intentionally to worship the king. Worship is costly and it should be. Remember David, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, David took the census and he wasn't supposed to do that. So God said, there's going to be a penalty for that. You've sinned. And he said, there's going to be a plague for three days. It's going to be carried out by an angel of the Lord. And the angel stopped at the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. And David went out there with his entourage and he says, I want to buy this threshing floor. That's where the angel stopped. I want to build an altar to the Lord. And Aruna said, listen, your majesty, all of this is yours. I give it to you. The threshing floor, the wood, the oxen, it's all here. Make your sacrifice. And David said, I insist on paying full price. I will not give an offering to the Lord, which cost me nothing. It needs to cost me something. It's costly. Now notice the posture of the wise men. These rich and wise and powerful men from the east bow down to a baby. They weren't worried about their Armani suits getting dirty. They weren't worried about their designer sandals getting scuffed up. When you're in the presence of the king, your posture changes. You either have a bowed head or a bowed knee or a bowed face to the ground. You didn't bow, you didn't appear before the king without a gift, and you had a posture of respect. Now, we're not to judge the way other people worship because it's a matter of the heart. Um, I grew up in a charismatic church where people would dance around the room and they had tambourines and all kinds of stuff, um, which is biblical, totally biblical. Uh, David was all over the place with his worship. He worshiped foolishly. And he said, I will worship even more foolishly because I will praise the king. So all biblical, but it doesn't matter. We're supposed to be worshiping with our whole heart. See, because doing all of that just for a show doesn't impress God. We can worship completely solemnly and pour our hearts out to worship to the Lord. Um, there's a story of an Italian uh, poet who was in church one Sunday. And as part of the church service, they had a lot of rituals and things that they would do during the course of the service. And so he was so caught up in worship, so consumed that day, that he completely missed the rituals. He was so lost, he didn't do them. And he just was standing there. And there were some men in the church who did not like him. And they saw this, and they saw this as a sign of disrespect. And so they ran to the priest and said, listen, this guy was acting very disrespectfully during worship, during our ceremony. And so the priest calls him in, and he says, you know, what's the deal? And he said, I just, I got so lost in worship. I was so caught up. And consequently, if these men had been caught up in worship, they wouldn't have noticed that I was so caught up in worship. When I was in school, they explained it this way, Sunday school. They said, you can either, you know, you can be a bush, you know, a shrub, and you can just put your hands out like this. Or you can, you can be a bush and you can raise your hands out like this. Or you can be a tree, you know, and raise your hands up, you know, and just kind of sway back and forth. Um, I don't care which one you are. My encouragement is to worship with your whole heart, to spend it all on him. He's worth it and more. True worship comes from a humble heart. Let go of your pride and approach him with humility and brokenness. True worship responds appropriately. We're standing before the creator of the universe, the one that became a man so that you and I could be saved. And true worship is costly. 
It'll move you out of your comfort zone. That's okay. It'll stretch you personally. That's all right. It might cost you physically, emotionally, financially. He's worth it and more. Uh, there was a conference at a Presbyterian church in Omaha. And the people, as they walked in, I wanted to do this so badly, uh, were given helium-filled balloons, right? And they said, at some point in the service, if you feel moved by the Spirit, or if you become overjoyed, you have this sense of joy, then just let go of your balloon. The ceilings are a little high in here. But it said, at the end of service, a third of the people were still holding on to their balloons. I would encourage you to let go of your balloons and worship the King. We have communion in front of us today, and as we start this first song, uh, just come up and grab worship, and or grab communion, which is part of worship. It's an act of worship. And just take it there at your seat. Um, thank Him for who He is. Worship Him for who He is and what He's done for us. And we get to worship Him for what He's done for us and for what we get from Him. The wise men didn't get to do that. They just simply worshiped Him for who He was. But we get to do all of that. So come up and, and grab communion, and then uh, we will worship Him together.